Tonight, we are looking at Acts chapter 20. Again, the theme for worship this evening is the Apostle Paul's farewell to the elders in the church in Ephesus. Humans were never actually wired by God to say goodbye. Relationships were never meant to dissolve. And therefore, it feels like death anytime we have to say goodbye, even if we know that we're going to see somebody for all eternity. And so what we see here is the human side of an inspired man, the Apostle Paul, who's struggling to let go of people that he has served graciously and cared for dearly. This is the first half of what I'm going to teach on in a couple minutes from now. Acts 20, verses 17 through 24. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, and my only aim is to finish the race, to complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Here ends our first lesson. We'll pick it up from there in a second. We read verses 17 through 24. I'm going to pick it up at 25 to go through 38. Paul's farewell to some Ephesian friends. Here, Paul says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the work of his grace, word of his grace, excuse me, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. After Easter, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And the reason for that is Acts is the story of the early Christian church. And for centuries after Easter, what the early church did, what the church did is they looked at what the early church did. They said, after Jesus ascended into heaven, what was the Spirit of God leading the church to do? 
And how do we take that, because that's the stuff that Jesus continued to do on earth. That was the ministry through his body. How do we contextualize that to our particular setting? And that will be the work that Jesus continues to do on earth here still today. Now, uh, something that a lot of Christians probably don't understand is the fact that the book of Acts is structured on a bunch of speeches, bunch of relatively lengthy speeches, and so it's, it's Peter's speech on Pentecost in Acts 2, and it's Stephen's long speech uh, before his martyrdom in Jerusalem, and it's Peter's speech to the Roman centurion, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and it's Paul's speeches on his missionary journeys. They're all kind of interesting in the way that they're structured, but this one is unique for two particular reasons. This speech in Acts 20 is the first time that we see Paul actually giving a speech like a pastor. Like every other time, he's giving a speech kind of as an evangelist or a Christian apologist or defender of the Christian faith, but here he's actually talking like a pastor. And the other side of that coin is the fact that the people that he's talking to are not Jews or Gentiles who are either infants to the faith or first discovering the Christian faith. These are mature Christians. So it's a pastor speaking with mature Christians. That's a little bit unusual. And he's been with them for three years. He knows them really well. And for this reason, this text is oftentimes used, or has been used over the years, to provide something of a job description for overseers and elders and shepherds in the church. And it is that. It does that pretty well. But for our purposes, in the broader scheme of things, what it's really helpful for is understanding Christian friendship. Okay, so let's work our way through the flow of the text here. And a little bit of context is, again, the Apostle Paul has been wrapping up his third missionary journey, and he's at a location called Miletus. Miletus is not that far from Ephesus. I have it there on the map there. Uh, But he's on his way towards Jerusalem. He doesn't want to get too far off schedule. So he agrees by way of communication with the Ephesian elders that they are going to meet up at Miletus. And he's going to give them some final instructions. Now, it's probably also worth mentioning that in Ephesus, when we talk about the church in Ephesus, they probably had a large gathering on the weekend, uh, like on a Sunday, where they all got together and had a meal, and it was their big gathering. You know what they also had? A bunch of little congregations throughout Ephesus. In other words, they met in one another's homes throughout the course of the week, and it's not completely unlike what we talk about uh, with our growth groups, right? We have one church at St. Marcus, but throughout the course of the week, we meet in a bunch of people's homes, and we discuss a lot of things and pray for one another, and each of those groups has various leaders, and they're sort of helping shepherd and instruct and guide a portion of God's people. Those are the people, those group leaders are the people who are meeting up with the Apostle Paul in Miletus. And the first thing that he does there is he shares with them about his experience in Ephesus. He was there three years and he provides a summary of that. And he says, the entire time I acted like a servant. I was humble. I was about other people more than about myself. I did it with tears. It was so hard at times. I faced a lot of opposition. I didn't hold back in teaching the word of God to you. I went, I did it publicly. I did it privately from house to house. I did it amongst the Jews. I did it amongst the Gentiles. I did it amongst believers. I did it amongst non-believers. I encouraged the repentance of your sins, and I encouraged you in faith in Jesus as your risen Lord and Savior. The key word of how he summarizes his ministry here is he said, I only gave you what was helpful. I gave you what was helpful. That's interesting. That means I didn't give you what you wanted to hear all the time. I gave you what was helpful, what the Lord had told me was helpful. 
Uh, this is a little bit like, I remember reading a story a long time ago about a military chaplain going to some servicemen, and they had clearly had some kind of bad experience prior, and when he came up to them, this is, I think, like mid, mid-20th century, he came up to them, and the servicemen, right off the jump, asked them, so do you believe that hell is a real place for lost sinners? And the chaplain sort of smiled and said, no, I don't believe that. Like, I don't believe in that. And then they said to him, well, you're wasting your time here then. Because if hell's not a real place, why do we need you? And if hell is a real place, you're completely leading us astray. In either case, we're actually better off without you. Now, that's pretty blunt. That sounds real blunt in 2023. And yet, you got to understand, this is like military man pragmatism that uh, recognizes, remember, in foxholes, there's no such thing as atheists. And what they're saying ultimately is, uh, you know, these are guys of healthy discipline. We know we don't just need to hear what sounds good in our lives. We know we need information that is accurate. And uh, we also benefit from having it be shared with us from someone who, like one of us, would lay their lives down for one another. That's what's helpful. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is presenting to the church in Ephesus. I only gave you what was helpful. You didn't always like it from me, but I gave you what I knew through God's word was helpful. He goes on, after summarizing the past, he goes into the present and he says, look, I'm now handing some of this ministry over to you. And this is a hard goodbye. It's hard to say goodbye to people that you love, especially understanding that it might be the last time you ever get to see them. And yet the Apostle Paul knows that he's going to spend eternity in heaven with these individuals. And he, what he also knows then is if I get billions of years in heaven with people, I don't have to try to squeeze every possible thing out of them in this lifetime. And actually, my moment here on earth, these 70 or 80 years, are not just trying to squeeze paradise relationships on this planet. My time, the little time I get on this planet, is meant for kingdom impact. It's meant for kingdom ministry. And the Holy Spirit is pushing me towards Jerusalem. Paul would be very comfortable staying with the people in Ephesus. and They liked him a lot. They appreciated him. They, you know, but that's, that's not where I can make the most impact right now. The Spirit's pushing me towards Jerusalem. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. He's told me it's going to be very hard. I'm going to get tons of opposition. Uh, but I, I have to proclaim the good news of God's grace to lost sinners. That's what I got to do. And therefore, what I want you to do is I'm going to hand over my responsibilities in Ephesus to you so that you can do the ministry now. And so he starts talking about their future. And it's a little bit like, you know, when... Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, before he ascends into heaven, he basically gives over the keys to his ministry to his disciples after training them for three years. And now the Apostle Paul, after training the Ephesian elders for three years, is handing over the keys to his ministry and saying, I want you to take over. And he's got some instructions before them before he leaves. This, by the way, handing over ministry, that's what thoughtful ministers do. They don't just do all the ministry. If you think ministers are people who do all the ministry, that's incorrect. Ministers are people who coach God's people, equip God's people for works of service. They empower God's people to do the ministry. They coach them and train them and inspire them. And this gets us to what the Apostle Paul says here in verse 28, which is probably the most famous verse in this section. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now you notice he's not saying, I'm appointing you guys as elders. 
He says, it's the Holy Spirit working through me because that's what, that's what God does in the era of the Spirit. He works on earth primarily through his church. God, through me, is appointing you to be the leaders in this church, to shepherd the flock that Jesus purchased with his own blood. If Jesus purchased it, he gave his life for it. These people, this responsibility is extraordinarily important. So take it seriously. Shepherd the flock very carefully. Now, shepherding the flock, what exactly does that even mean? Did you know, you know where the word pastor comes from? The word pastor is actually a Latin word. Uh, it comes from the Latin for shepherd. What's interesting about that, as I understand it, and I didn't really understand this growing up, but I understand this now that I've been able to study it more myself, is pastor in the New Testament is a lot less a title. It's a lot more an activity. This is part of the reason why, for instance, when people come to St. Marcus and they ask me, like, what do I call you? And the, the part of the reason for that question is because in the last like 30, 40 years, there's been a lot of jostling on what you, how you refer to ministers, like is it Pastor Hine or Pastor James or James or Pastor. And I usually tell them, I don't care, whatever you're comfortable with, you know, don't call me Hine. That's very impersonal and you're not my phi ed teacher. So don't call me Hine. Uh, but like just about anything else, I'm pretty much okay with, right? And part of the reason for that is I don't actually find in the New Testament anybody going by the title pastor. I see a lot of pastoring, and I see a lot of shepherding, but I see no one with the title of pastor. And I want to be very careful as I say this here, but I think in general in life, and especially in the spiritual realm, insisting on titles sometimes comes from a place of arrogance or insecurity. My general experience is people will follow your voice when they trust you and they want you to pastor them. You know, like you notice in the, in the grand scheme of the sheep and the shepherd metaphor, sheep don't actually call the pastor anything. They follow his voice when they learn to trust him. If people learn your voice and they trust your voice, they're going to follow you. And this is whether you're shepherding in your home or whether you're shepherding and like coming in as like in, in insisting on titles and insisting on... That rarely works. If people trust your voice, they'll follow. And the, the part of the, what the Apostle Paul gives in his last exhortation to the Ephesian elders, it reminds me of what a loving parent does when they send their kid off to college or what a loving parent does when they give their keys to a teenager and they're going to go like drive for the very first time. What is the end of this? Paul, Paul says is watch out. Just please be careful. Watch out. Now, specifically what he says is I know after I leave, Savage wolves are coming. They're going to come amongst you. They're not going to try to spare the flock, even from your own number. People from the inside are going to rise up and they're going to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So watch out. Be on your guard. Now, notice what he mentions here. There's going to be threats to your faith. They're going to come from outside the church and they're going to come from inside the church. And the commonality between the two is they distort the truth. That's what they do. They take the truth of God's word. They take about 75% of it that you can like, yep, yep, yep. But then they add another 25% that your flesh loves to hear. Your sinful, fallen flesh loves to hear. And it's like this sweet-sounding nonsense by which your flesh craves it. It's, it's like predators tempting kids with candy. And sometimes your job as a shepherd... Again, whether we're talking shepherds in the home or shepherds in the church, sometimes my job, frankly, is to smack the wolf in the mouth when it's coming after you. 
Now, I mean that with no sense of violence or malice. I would rather harm come on me than lay one harmful finger on even a false prophet. What I'm trying to say is there has to be firmness. There has to be a level of correction and guidance and shepherding. And let me put it like this. Think about the shepherd's sheep. If a shepherd treats the wolves like they're rabbits, those sheep are goners. If you love, if you love the sheep, you can't treat the wolves like rabbits. You have to treat them like wolves. <sighs> Frankly, how many times, and I'm not even talking about like church polity here or anything like that, but how many times does a shepherd put things up for a vote amongst the sheep? Like what I'm saying is if you're going to lead, lead. If you're going to shepherd, shepherd. If you're going to make decisions in your home, if, I don't know, are you in a position of leadership? Then lead. That's what a shepherd does. By the way, I have the, the picture of a shepherd's staff there. The shepherd's staff is such a fantastically interesting instrument of authority uh, because it shows what is a, a staff, what does it do? It does management, it does protection, it does correction. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, look, you guys are the elders now. You're in charge. And in that responsibility, shepherd attentively, shepherd sacrificially, shepherd selflessly, shepherd compassionately, shepherd courageously, and shepherd by the Spirit's guidance. Your responsibility now, shepherd according to the Spirit. And the final thing here, the final picture is the Apostle Paul, you know, in this meeting with these Ephesian elders who he's poured his life into, these friends, basically they fall down on one another and they hug and kiss and they cry together. And it's just so human because even when you know that you're going to spend eternity with somebody, that does not mean that even temporal goodbyes aren't painful. They are. Again, I said it earlier, God never wired humans to have to say goodbye. And so it kills us in a sense to do it. So what do we learn here? We got a couple application points for you. Number one, you need Christian friends. I'm going to define what that means. But see, there's this lie in life. It's promoted by the spiritual forces that exist in the world. It's perpetuated by the false prophets that exist in the world. That independence is actually the ideal. That dependence is a sign of weakness. And dependence is a sign of immaturity. And then there's these constant social refrains that you're hearing that are constantly driving you into yourself, driving you into your selfish pursuits, driving you away from other focused covenant-type relationships. And what you need to understand as a Christian, in the middle of paradise... God looked at Adam, who was sinless at the time, and said, this isn't good. He's alone. Now, this does not mean that singleness is alone. Some of your parents falsely interpret this passage that way, in part because they maybe want grandbabies or something like that. God does not say, oh, it's bad to be single. He said, it's bad to be alone. God does not create you as independent. He does not create you as codependent. He creates you as interdependent. Now, what that means, practically speaking, is that uh, if you feel alone, and you feel like I need deeper relationships in life and a deeper support system, that doesn't make you weak. That makes you, like, self-aware, you know? Uh, that, that's not a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of maturity to say, like, I can't do everything on my own. It's a sign of humility along the way. Again, practically, if you desire deep relationships and you feel lonely, that doesn't mean you're dysfunctional. You're fine. You feel that way because you're not a machine and you need deep relationships. And admittedly, some of us uh, struggle with loneliness for a couple of different reasons. Now, some 
are so, some of us are so pushing into our own particular pursuits that we forget to foster deep relationships along the way, and therefore we feel cripplingly lonely, but it's like this self-inflicted kind of thing. Others of us, fact of the matter, and we have to be open enough as Christians to talk this way amongst one another, but others of us struggle a little bit socially. And what I mean by that is we need coaching from fellow Christians because uh, we're lonely, but it's maybe because there's aspects of our personality that are kind of abrasive. And uh, we maybe need to learn to not turn every conversation back towards us, which is the default of the human spirit. We, need, we maybe need to learn that, like, in relationships, you have to give more than you take. And we need to be lovingly coached into that type of uh, meaningful relationship. But the point is, all of us need it. No matter how independent or how strong you think you are, all of us need deep friendships, and we benefit from deep friendships there is, so far as I can tell in the research out there, not a single factor that contributes to human satisfaction and contentment and wellness in life more than deep, personal, transparent, meaningful relationships. And almost by definition, the deepest of the relationships are the ones that last forever. You need that. In fact, I would even say, this is the first time it's hit me this week studying this, but looking at the Apostle Paul, if I asked a bunch of Christians who are relatively familiar with the New Testament, like, do you know anything about, have you heard of Paul? Do you know anything about Paul? Some of them might say, you know, he wrote a chunk of the New Testament. I think some of them would say, isn't that the guy with like the missionary journeys or something like that? He went on mission trips. Uh, what I think is actually off the radar and doesn't register with people is the aspect of, yes, Paul goes on missionary trips. Have you ever noticed he's never alone? He's never alone. We always call them, there's Paul's first missionary journey. Here's Paul's second missionary journey. Like, uh, why don't we call it Paul and Silas missionary journey? Paul and Barnabas missionary journey. Paul and Luke's missionary journey. Paul and Timothy's missionary journey. He's always got an entourage with him. The guy's in jail and he's got people with him. He's in jail and he's got people visiting with him. He's in jail and he has pen pals and he's writing letters back and forth all the time. He's never, he's never alone. Paul's, ne he's not some kind of cowboy, whatever. he's never alone. Uh, for that matter, when Jesus sends out disciples, isn't it interesting that he never sends them out single file? I think most Christian churches today, when they send people out, generally tend to send them out one by one. Like, go and do this now. Jesus always sends them out two by two. Why do you think that is? Uh, for that matter, what's crazy is even Christ himself never actually seeks to do ministry alone. He surrounds himself with a dozen-plus close companions. Now, we're going to circle back to that here in a couple minutes, but for right now, what I want you to understand is, look, if God said about perfect Adam in Eden, this isn't good that he's alone, and if God said to Paul, you're not going out there alone, and if Jesus said, yeah, I'm not going to try to do this alone, why on earth do you think you're going to do life alone? Why on earth do you think you're going to do ministry? And that for a Christian, that's what life is. It's ministry. How on earth do you think you're going to try to do that alone? You're not. And now, to be clear, when we talk about Christian friends, I'm not, I'm not really talking about somebody who, you know, you watch the game with and you play euchre with and you, like, that, those are nice things. Those are, those are nice to have. But that's not really how we're defining Christian friendship here. And actually, Paul gives a tremendous definition of what a Christian friend looks like in this text. Uh, it's right here in verse 31. I'm going to read it for you again. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I never stopped. I'm always doing it. I'm admonishing you with tears. I'm correcting at times with tears. 
You know why that's such a phenomenal definition? That's exactly what you and I need. You know why? Because a lot of us, we have two sets of friends that we don't really need all that much. There's the type of friend that agrees with you on everything all the time and would never, ever, ever disagree with you because they don't want to jeopardize the relationship. They would never correct you, um, which they're, they're great to have they're so, they're, because they're always pleasant. They always agree with you. Who doesn't want somebody that always agrees? The thing is, they're not ministers because they'll never say anything that would transform you. So they're friendly, but they're not Christian friends in the sense they're not ministers. On the other hand, we, also, we all have friends that not only do they correct us, they actually seem to kind of enjoy correcting us along the way. And it's like, they don't have tears in their eyes. They got like a smug smile on their face when they're correcting. I'm like, like, yeah, that's not really a Christian friend. That's, a, that's an enemy. That's not really a Christian friend, though. You know what you need? You need somebody that has to psych themselves up to correct you. But they correct you because they love you but they do it with tears in their eyes because they love you. You understand that tension? They're not going to not correct you because they're not going to let you exist in unrepentant sin or whatever because they love you, so they'll correct you. But it's so hard for them to bring any hurt into your life that they pretty much have tears in their eyes as they're trying, they don't enjoy it, they're trying to correct you. You see that? That's what Paul's talking about here. Someone who loves you enough to correct you, but somebody who loves you enough that they will have tears in their eyes even as they attempt to do it. That's what you need. That's a Christian friend. You need somebody who will drop everything to pray for you in moments of crisis and in moments of celebration. Uh, a little while ago, I was, I was sitting around a fire with a couple of guys, and one of them uh, admitted that, you know, like, my kid's not doing great. And the other one, another one that was sitting right next to him said, well, why don't we pray for her right now? It wasn't a church meeting. It was just guys sitting around a fire. Do you have that? Because you need that. Don't hide from that level of transparency. Paul needed that. Do you have that? Because you need that right now. Okay? So first point is the need for Christian friends. The second point is the unclear life guidance of God. Here's what I mean. There's occasionally sometimes when I get so many Christians who are saying, like, the, they're not like in cahoots, but they're all saying the exact same thing to me in slightly different circumstances. And it's these constant refrains that I just keep hearing and hearing and hearing. Uh, one of them recently and I've heard this throughout my ministry, but especially recently, it has to be, it's probably literally two dozen of you uh, have talked to me about making a major life decision. And generally speaking, the individual tends to be uh, a relatively young adult, in part because at that time you're making certain decisions that uh, you just kind of understand this could affect me for the rest, like for many years, for the rest of my life. And so whenever I hear like this constant refrain going on, I, I just kind of assume that God is sort of prompting me to talk about it a little bit in a broader scale, because it's probably going on amongst many. For you guys, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the Apostle Paul's disposition in the midst of all of this. Let me reread a couple of verses. Verses 22 to 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. I got no clue what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I want you to remember, this is the Apostle Paul. This guy literally talks to the resurrected Savior. 
This guy regularly had some kind of correspondence from the Holy Spirit. This guy had visions from God. This guy has an unusually high level of direct correspondence with God Almighty. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, how certain does he know about what's going on here in the next couple of weeks for him? He's got no clue. He's like, here's what I know. Uh, the, the Spirit prompted me to go to Jerusalem, and he said it's going to be hard. And he said I'm going to face opposition. And he said, I know that if I die, I'm going to heaven. And I know that in my time here on earth, I have to proclaim the good news of God's grace to sinners that they might be saved. Paul has no clue in a couple years he's going to be in Rome. He's got no clue who's going to oppress him and how. He's got no clue whether or not he's going to be successful in what he's doing. So he doesn't focus on what he doesn't know. He focuses on what he does know. What has God already revealed to me is important in my life. And in faith, he believes God is going to sort all the rest of the details out. So just get busy with, look, divine guidance. If the apostles themselves don't have crystal clear divine guidance from God, why are you waiting for that? Do what he's already told you to do. Let him do his job. He'll sort out the details. If he wants you in a certain location, he'll make sure that you get there. Do what he has already told you to do. Channel your energy into what he's already asked you to do. And he'll bring the ministry from there. Okay? So the need for Christian friends, the unclear life guidance of God, and finally, on the road to dying in Jerusalem. How do we know we can trust a guy? If he's got details about our lives and he won't share them with us, how do you know for sure you can trust this guy? This is usually my same, it's the same kind of third, if you haven't figured this out about me, my third point is pretty much the same point every time, but it's a good one, so I, I struggle to get off of it. Uh, but you know what's really interesting here? A number of Bible commentators will tell you that what Dr. Luke is doing when he writes the book of Acts is very intentional here. He's talking about the Apostle Paul not just teaching about Jesus, but he's getting to the point where he's looked at Jesus and he's taught about Jesus so often that he's starting to make the movements of Jesus. And here's what this means. Dr. Luke, again, wrote the book of Acts, and the twin companion to the book of Acts is the exact same size and length. It precedes the book of Acts. It's the gospel of Luke. Luke is operating with a correct assumption that almost invariably people who are reading the book of Acts have already read the gospel of Luke. And in the gospel of Luke, around the middle of it, in Luke chapter 9, after Jesus has come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he starts talking to his disciples about his impending death. And you know what he writes? At that moment, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, what Dr. Luke is very artistically doing here right now is he's saying what about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul is heading towards where? Jerusalem. Sacrificially. Resolutely. Despite a bunch of warnings from his friends. He doesn't know exactly how it's going to turn out. There's a level of uncertainty. But nonetheless, he's going to do it because his deepest desire is to submit to the voice of the Holy Spirit, to submit to his will. Who does that sound like? The Apostle Paul is doing, he's making the exact same movement as Jesus here, not for salvation, but because he already has salvation. When you see, and to the degree that you see the grace of God for you in the person of Jesus, your Redeemer, you're willing to journey to Jerusalem. To go to hard places. To move forward in the midst of uncertainty. 
to have difficult conversations, to embrace discomfort in a fallen world. And you can do it in part because, much like the Apostle Paul, you're not going to have to do it alone. God is going to make sure that you have Christian friends right next to you every step of the way so that you can face the big, scary stuff. And that brings me to the final point in this. The difference between Paul and Jesus is what? To the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he had friends with him every step of the way. And Jesus, when he went to Jerusalem, he's betrayed by his deepest friends. He's abandoned by his friends. In the hour of his crisis, his friends fall asleep on him. Jesus is going to have to die the loneliest person on the planet. But he's willing to do it because he loves us. He's willing to do it to forgive us and redeem us. And our motivation to follow him and journey to Jerusalem with him is not for salvation. It's because we already have the salvation that he's already earned for. It's precisely the fact that he loved us and he wanted to free us from any sorts of temporal or cosmic loneliness. So he gets rejected by his friends so that we will ultimately have forever friends in the family of God. Jesus died for our selfishness. He died for our delusional sense of independence. He died for our unfriendliness so that we would forever have amazing, godly friends, wonderful friends like him. And that inspires us in our few days to journey to Jerusalem with him. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, this weekend, we are thanking you deeply for Christian mothers. We're also thanking you for dear Christian friends who stick close to us. Help us be good Christian friends. And help those of us who are lonely right now to find Christian friends. We ask this as we celebrate you, our Lord and Savior, as our greatest friend. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.